0: Welcome to Nostrovia, your weekly Nostra podcast. I'm your host G Sovereignty, and Bitcarrot is back this week for our interview with Uncle Bob.
1: Do you want to tell us your story of how you got into all this?
2: How I got into all this master stuff? Well, how far back yes. in time do you want to go? <laughs> ah. So I've been um, watching the uh, the horror scene of the social networks over the last. End uh, years, uh, and it occurred to me oh, about a year ago that the the current set of social networks was abysmal, and something had to be done about it because we can't we can't continue to have a uh, uh, a, a, a an exchange uh, a messaging exchange that is being dominated by government or or corporate uh, agendas. So. um I, I recalled my time on the internet from the 1980s. And this is when the internet was like nothing, right? There was a backbone sort of, and it and it sort of went around the world to educational institutions and military institutions. And anybody who wanted to use it had to dial into one of those hubs or dial into somebody who dialed into one of those hubs. And it was a very sporadic and diversified and um, um, stochastic kind of network right it was it was you dialed in and you sent your email you dialed in and you sent your articles you dialed in and you sent this and you got stuff back and it was very very um, free you could say anything you wanted there was nobody who could could moderate it there was no way to moderate it you just said whatever you wanted. There were several different applications uh, in those days that mostly software people used. It, it was used by other people as well, but not nearly like it is today. And one of those applications was NetNews. And in uh, NetNews, you would write articles the kind of the same way you would do it on Facebook. Uh, you could write long ones, so it wasn't quite like Twitter, but it was very much like Facebook. Except there weren't any pictures, there weren't any videos, there wasn't any sound. It was all text. But we would have raging discussions on these networks, and anybody could say anything they wanted, and there was no way that anybody could ch- censor it or fact check it or do anything. It was just very freewheeling and very open. And I remembered that, and I thought, well, that's the kind of thing we need. And about a year ago, I said something like that on Twitter, risking, of course, getting blocked and getting getting uh, uh, suppressed. But I said something like that on Twitter, and somebody fired back and said, "Well, have you heard of Noster? And I had not, so I started looking things up. I said, "Okay, what is this like?" And as as I read the the documents that Fiat Jeff had put out there, and a few other people have added to, I thought, "Well, this sounds pretty interesting, but there's not a lot of tooling." So I thought, "I'm going to write myself a client for this network. See if I can figure out WebSockets and and Bitcoin." cryptography and and all of this crazy stuff in order to get uh, a client put together and I started fiddling around with it and actually made some progress and, and then I started talking about that on Twitter and getting you know the people on Twitter thinking oh my God so maybe we should have a different network and of course in the in the early days that was laughed off the off the screen and then of course elon musk buys twitter and and One side of the political aisle goes absolutely crazy and they all move to To mastodon and the other side of the political aisle is looking around on twitter and thinking hey It's actually kind of nice around here now and meanwhile, i'm sitting there going. No, it's all going to be on Noster, guys It's got to be there because you never know what these guys who run these networks are going to do next and so that's really what what made it uh interesting for me. A Noster is, yeah. is a network that nobody can tamper with uh, reliably. You know, you could probably tamper with a relay, but you can't tamper with the whole network. There's no way to do it. And that's why I like it.
1: Cool. All right. I got a Let's, list of questions from the community. Right?
2: Well, let, hang what? on a minute. Let me just let me just say this one thing here. This, this business of you know free interchange of information is a double-edged sword, right? You're you're going to be able to say yes. whatever you want, but so's everybody else, and you're going to have to be able to live with that. And that means that terrorists can use it to organize. <laughs> you'll have to live with that as well. And porn people are going to be able to use it, and you'll have to live with that as well. But it seems to me that that's a better better alternative than living with the censors who will push their own stupid agendas. Okay. I'm done. Thank you.
1: Right. Oh, that's fine. Um, I I'm totally, I'm totally chill at that. Um, so do you think that this will be, uh, something in 10 years? That's what people are curious about. Do you like, what possibilities do you think there will be like in 10 years Would Noster lead the way, would there be other networks that will adapt any like thoughts around this?
2: Well I think it's impossible to say what's going to happen in 10 years but I I think the idea of untamperable distributed networks is clearly the only way to do uh, a free speech and open an open exchange environment so whether it's Noster or something else you know someone could invent some some newer technology that outdoes Noster, but but that's you know that's just the way of the world I've, I'm. I am convinced that this kind of network, distributed, everybody can put their own relay up. Everybody can send their own messages. I believe. I believe that is the future. Uh, going into you know ten years, twenty years, thirty years, God knows what kind of networking sure. we'll have by then.
1: Yeah. What like what will things look like in the year three thousand? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Will it all be robots, <laughs> right? I mean, here that's, that's another DPI question. Is
2: any any. Uh, yeah, any indication? Not if ChatGPT. So, this is right?
1: exactly, exactly. So, people are, have been asking a lot about ChatGPT. Um, <laughs> I've had the same questions. In fact, you know, like the community members are s- stressing out. Someone asked, um, can you consider what is the short term future generative tech, ChatGPT? Do you think it'll make it programs more productive, more stupid, both or neither? A, B, C, or D. Uh, I'll let you take it from there.
2: Well, uh, you know, what <laughs> ChatGPT, all of these fun, funny little AIs uh, are interesting tools. If you use it as a tool, uh, you may get some benefit out of it. What I have, what I have discovered about ChatGPT in particular is that it is not above lying to you. <laughs> it'll, it'll tell you something that's completely wrong. Yeah. If you ask it to generate some code, it'll generate code for you, but, but you better read that code and understand it because it's crap. <laughs> But, oh yeah you know, if you ask it a very yeah. focused question you might get a reasonable answer I
0: was just wondering Bob if you've like thought about uh, how, how deeply you've th- you've thought about the censorship resistance it's censorship resistant compared to the current social platforms but um but against a state actor um, have you thought about that
2: a state actor can um can wield power that is essentially infinite and uh, you know if if the state actor decides that no one can use the internet except the way they say they will be able to enforce that with 85 90% reliability then there are the people who understand what that network is and how to thwart it who will be able to subvert that and they will do so at great personal risk but they will do so anyway And they will become the French resistance of the internet. And there'll be no way that the government officials will be able to completely rein that in. Now, you know, whether that whether Noster goes in that direction or whether it's something completely different, I don't know. I imagine it would be something completely different. I am not worried about the Western world going quite that far. I, you know, I <laughs> Western society has done pretty well over the last uh, century and a half. I don't think it's going to go down that rat hole. Is it possible? Yes, but that's not what I anticipate. I do expect, however, that there will be forces in the Western world at, that we see today that will attempt to suppress information and suppress call it disinformation and call it misinformation and and call it every name under the book and fact check it left and right I expect that to happen and I expect them to be able to do nothing at all about master mm, yeah cool.
1: yeah uh, so it, there was an interview with smackers one of um, one of the people that we know and uh he he also brought the same concept about the threat model with ip address attacks and relays um and fiat draft actually countered that by saying well you can just keep moving you know keep rotating your relays and then the information will be out there which i find very interesting because um it made me think about this one case where um you know a website called scihub maybe you heard about this, it was created by Alexandra El- Elba out in Kazakhstan, where she put all the scientific research papers on a website um, and the publishers kept on filing lawsuits against her, but she's out in Kazakhstan and they kept rotating all of the like IP addresses and the domain names and still until like, it, it's been going wrong for at least like since 2016 or so. So seven years and with so many attempts by, I think, you know, not, not sure if it goes all the way to the government level, but uh takedown requests, she, it hasn't been taken down and people can go there and freely access these research papers, which would, you know, normally cost maybe like 50 or, you know, dollars or more to, to get um, at a publisher like Science Magazine or Nature. So, you know, I, I think, that if something like that can last as long as it does and keep rotating its addresses, maybe you know, with Noster as big as it, as it is, because we have over a thousand or almost a thousand relays at this point, <laughs> you know I, i'm I'm thinking that this could possibly
2: possibly work uh, I, I think it'll work. yeah, you know, a a state actor could put an awful lot of pressure on that if you know if the, if they really wanted to shut this lady down they could probably put an awful lot of pressure on it um but as long as as long as the state actor is not willing to spend several billion dollars on it then probably it's going to be easy to dodge once they do once they do want to spend that much money on it it won't be as easy to dodge but it will always be possible to dodge people are very clever they will find ways <laughs> to sneak things into the internet that no one can track, and no one, you know, no one knows is there.
1: Okay. Uh, how if we shift gears a bit? And um, a common question I get um, is, do you have any advice for people learning to program? And oh my maybe we can talk a little bit. Yeah, maybe we can talk a little about SICP, you know, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, um, by Abelson and Sussman, which is a classic. And um, your thoughts around that? I read that when I was an undergrad great book um you know set me on the right track to think about computing in general and data and structures Um very fortunate to have had that kind of training. But I feel like, you know, these days people are like, oh why why go back to something that's so ancient and you know a lot of people actually flunked out of that class when I took it <laughs> because it was it's you're laughing, right? It's it's not easy. You know, it's not easy. And I'm like, well what what was it about that I got that, you know, like other people didn't get I'm like we're you know why is it so difficult because you know after so many decades we we only have half a percent of the world's population who are actually active programmers so <laughs> i was wondering you are you laughing about that but it's so true right you know i talk to people all the time they're like i'm gonna learn how to program this year i'm like great good for you and then two weeks later they just disappear they're like oh my god i just can't handle it so any thoughts around that would love to hear your input
2: Oh heavens you want to start me on a, an an hour long lecture. Um so first of all, you know, half a percent of the world's population is uh, a programmer. Uh, but when I started programming, it was not, you know, a half a percent or a tenth of a percent or a thousandth of a percent or a 10,000th of a percent. There were maybe 10,000 programmers in the world, maybe. When I started this back in the 1960s. Um, and now, of course, we can measure the number of programmers in a percentage of the population of the world. That is a remarkable statement. And then to add to that, the number of programmers in the world doubles at a rate of about once every five years. So, five years from now, it'll be 1%. 10 years from now, it'll be 2%. And that number is going to grow pretty damn fast, unless something happens to slow that growth. But so far, nothing has so i expect that number to continue to grow and grow uh until it's um well until uh we have to actually start recruiting more women because that's half the world and they're not seeming to join our ranks
1: i don't understand that still i mean it was like totally cool when i was doing it but maybe i'm just weird
2: i'm like, I don't even, understand it even
1: yeah but, i, I look at your solid principles and i was like what's solid i because i didn't know what you had written and I was like, "Isn't the L in Solid Liskov substitution principle?" And like, "Isn't that Barbara Liskov?" Yes, so yes, like, is. yeah, <laughs> like, I don't get it. I mean, numbers, it's it's fantastic though. It,
2: go ahead. The numbers in the U.S. are are just abysmal as far as women in in the industry. uh You know, it's like two, three, four percent. It's a very, very small number. Maybe it's gotten better in the last. A few years, but the last time I, I did a serious study on it It was it was terrible and that's a reversal from what it was in the 50s Because in the nineteen fifties, yeah. virtually all women. Oh, no, excuse me virtually all programmers were women Because uh, the men built the hardware and the women, you know made the hardware work And I, when I first got a job as a programmer a long long time ago Half the programmers were women and they were all in their 30s and 40s by the way uh, and then later on, about ten years after that, um, I saw those numbers change dramatically. So I I look at the change in the demographics as happening happening in the mid seventies. Other people put it in the early eighties. I think it happened long before that. Some people will blame the uh, the the personal computer and think, well, it was marketed towards boys. But I saw it happen before that. So I don't I can't I can't rationalize that one. So you asked me <laughs> when we started this um, what advice I would have for programmers. You know, how do you get into being pro- a programmer? What do you do as a programmer? And there are so many things to say about that. Number one, um, read, <laughs> read a lot, and read old stuff. You know, there's the the our industry is this industry that pretends to be modern, but it is not modern the things that we do the things the code that we write is old you know back in the 60s and in the 50s they were writing if statements they were writing while loops they were writing assignment statements and what we do today is write if statements and while loops and assignment statements we might write a few more of them and we might have slightly fancier languages but it's essentially the same thing and the insights that those people had in the 1950s and 60s and 70s are as valid today as they were back then. It is tempting, especially for young people, to think that oh no, it's all different now, and it's not. It's not different at all. So a book like SICP, right? <laughs> the structure and interpretation of computer programs is remarkably relevant, even though it's what 25, 30 years old. It is remarkably relevant. I am. Um, you mentioned that book i i had been a programmer for 30 years before i saw that book and it changed my life yeah i didn't think that you know something written uh, decades before was going to have a profound effect on the way i conceived of programming but here's this book and it just changed the way i thought about it it was a remarkable book for me to read and i read it At light speed. I was throwing those pages. It was I was almost cheering as I read it Because it was so influential and so powerful and the the things they were saying in that book Resonated with my past 30 years of experience in a way that Maybe somebody reading it for the first time when they're starting their career wouldn't have had that interesting Experiential resonance, but it really did change my whole aspect on how software should be written and what software is so that's a book that everybody ought to read just that one and and it's free you can get it on the on the internet for nothing right they they just released it to everybody
1: yeah it's freely available but they also have an updated version that's in javascript and <laughs> i didn't know it to... <laughs> i was like oh no what happened yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> someone is missing the point somewhere <laughs>
1: Right. Um, So, like, can you go into a little more detail about, like, how did that influence you? Did it influence the clean code that you started to write later, the clean architecture books? Not
2: particularly. Um, The the stuff in clean code and clean architecture is very old, very, you know, ancient wisdom that was coined by lots and lots of other people, which I just managed to kind of gather into a book and give it a snappy title so that people bought it the um the stuff in in sicp structure interpretation of computer programs goes much much deeper than that it's a uh, a very profound kind of lesson and to give you a sense of that i read through it and and I, like i said i was just throwing the pages it was so exciting for me to read but i read through it and i worked through all the examples and it's this language you know scheme which is a very pretty language And I was very intrigued by it all. And I really enjoyed example after example after example. And then you get to page, I think it was 250 something. (laughs) And they stop. They just slam on the brakes. And they say, okay, this has been fun, but now we have to do something that's going to really damage everything. It's going to throw a, a horrible monkey wrench into everything you've learned so far. And they introduce their first assignment statement. And I was absolutely floored. It's like what? The, all this code that I have written for the last, or or read for the last two hundred and fifty pages, there was no assignment anywhere in any of that. And I had to go back. I had to go back and check. No, they didn't put any assignment. They did all kinds of stuff. There was no assignment anywhere in there. I thought, oh my god. I I'd, I'd never seen that before. You know, and I'd looked at functional programming and I kind of thought I understood what functional programming was, but I always had my doubts. And here I am at this in this book and a slam on the brakes in this in this beautiful climax and then they introduce their first assignment and then they explain why that's problematic and what goes wrong when you assign it when you mutate the state of a variable and why that's a why that's a, uh, breaks the model of computing in a profound way <laughs> and then then they work you into it okay now we're going to do a little of this and some more assignment okay and they go through a more few more examples and a few more examples and then they slam on the brakes again 50 pages later and they introduced their first threads, and I, I thought it was it was remarkably profound that they equated assignment and threads as being equally deleterious to software in general. They're, they are equal evils. <laughs> so, so that's just one of the things that had me uh, quivering when I read these when I read this book.
0: Um, I just I, I noticed that you're using closure for. For something you're working on um yes uh, with nothing yeah like what what is that because you wanted to use functional stuff or like do you have a lambda calculus kind of thing going on there or like what was the what are you thinking about that
2: well i read this sicp uh it must be 20 years ago now um maybe 18 something like that and i thought okay I really like this. I like this style. I'm going to have to reinvestigate functional programming and that means I'm going to have to deal with Lisp. And I you know for years and years I had avoided Lisp because you know who wants to deal with all those horrible parentheses. Right? So, okay fine. I'm going to have to Make deal with Emacs
1: Lisp. great again. Sorry I had to just say that.
2: And I was Make- I was an Emacs <laughs> bigot. I was you know I was an Emacs guy. I knew Emacs left and right, but I never did the list thing. I, I never got into the Lisp inside of Emacs. So, so I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to learn Lisp. And I look around and there's a couple of Lisps out there, and I just happened to run into this closure thing. And I knew I knew um Rich Hickey. Uh, and I, I it was a very indirect thing. I knew Rich Hickey because he and I had exchanged views 20 years before on that social network that I was talking about, Usenet. You know, he was a C plus C++ guy or a C guy, and I was a C plus plus or a C guy, and we bantered back and forth about the right way to do, you know, C plus or C. And I always found what he wrote to be insightful. And then he disappeared from the scene, as far as I was concerned. And all of a sudden, here I am looking for a list that I can use. And oh, Rich Hickey! Oh, he wrote a list. Oh, it works on the JVM. Well, that would be convenient. And so I just started to fiddle with it. And this is like, you know, 12, 13 years ago. I started to fiddle with the language. And I bumped into test uh to Stu Holloway and a few of the other guys who were involved in closure. And I thought, you know, this is a good group of guys. I like what they're doing. Uh, and I just started using the language. Just and at first I was just playing around with it. And then I started doing more serious things with it. And then I I got my um my compatriots to start using the language and you know they and they got a little more interested in it and it's just been this growing kind of love affair with this really well-structured language that the that rich and the guys have done a really really good job with and it's 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 remarkable how well they've kept their principles uh in going in this language. So I, I'm a, a big fan at the moment. I think it's a great language.
0: One of my friends is like, he, he just, he got into closure, like probably around the same time, like, I don't know, 10 years ago. And um, he just couldn't stop talking about it. And uh, I, had, I dabbled with it back then. But but then like, yeah, one of the jokes was like, I don't even see the brackets anymore. I just see blonde, brunette, redhead.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is nice that they managed to use a few different kinds of brackets because in scheme, it would all be parentheses. And in closure, at least you've got some square brackets and some curly brackets to, to break up the monotony of of all those, those closing parentheses at the end, <laughs> but but you know after a while you just kind of okay yep I see them I understand why they're there there aren't really any more of them than there would be in Java or JavaScript or something like that they're just in a different place uh, and they're fine that way so you know you do get used to it yeah and it does
1: well. yeah one of the things I remembered about Scheme like early on when I learned was the very first thing they kept on telling us is, do not fixate on syntax. That's why you're here. Do not fixate on syntax. Look at the concept and don't memorize anything.
2: (laughs) uh, Did you ever watch the videos by Abelson and Sussman that walk through SICP, those old MIT videos, where they're writing this, the writing scheme on the blackboard? And then and they sit there and they draw those parentheses at the end. <laughs> I
0: was just wondering if you've looked at uh, uh, like TLA plus um, for um, formal specifications.
2: I have not. Uh, it has been mentioned to me several times, um, but, but I have never taken the time to look at the language and, and understand you know why it's there or what it's trying to achieve. I have my own doubts about formal specifications in general. Dijkstra went down this rat hole and it nearly killed him. And so I, I, I am fearful of what it might mean.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: Um. Okay. So uh, let's switch gears here a bit. Uh, one question from our our uh, our Nostra community: Jack Chekney or Chickney? I can't. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. He he asks, uh, so who drew the profile picture with the guy with the big head on your website? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, so that is a, a picture that was drawn freehand um, at a conference I went to five years ago in Lithuania, and I gave a, a keynote there, and and you know just a lot of fun to be there, and uh, at the end of it they they just handed me that picture and and it's uh it's such a good picture <laughs> it's such a good picture of of me <laughs> that, that i've got it sitting here on my on my uh, desk it's right there and i i appreciate it whenever i see it and i i've used it as an avatar ever since
1: cool um and i was wondering like do you have any thoughts of like what you would want the Noster development community to focus on more. You know, I'm just curious if you've seen things that come out that are great, or you've seen, you know, development that's not so hot. Um, like, what, what do you see that's going on that you're excited about? Anything you want to talk about there um, and you want to share with people?
2: The Noster development community is alive. it, it is It is full of energy and possibility there are more ideas coming out in a day than you can possibly absorb uh, some of the chat areas on the on the github site just explode I can't I can't follow it all and then if I if I look on the uh, the noster messages that I follow I follow a lot of those developers they're just spouting things left and right and coming up with this idea and that idea and I'm thinking well I'm writing a client. There's no way I'm gonna be able to integrate all this stuff into my client. So I'm just gonna plot along and and you know take some of the better ideas and add them to what I think is a good good idea for my own entertainment. Um, do I have advice for them? No, keep on being as creative as possible. These guys are the opposite of Chat GPT, right? They are making stuff that's new, they're inventing, they're wildly creative. So yeah keep going guys you're doing great stuff
0: um do you want to talk about what you're building on
2: nostr uh the thing i'm building is is called more speech uh and uh, you know the the best the best solution to bad speech is more speech so that's that's the name of the tool and it's a desktop tool for interacting with nostr so you can take the tool and attach it to a bunch of relays and up on your screen will come a list of all the messages and you can click on a message and see it in its full uh, uh glory and respond to it and dm and like things and so on it is however not modeled after twitter it is not modeled after facebook the the tools that are out there the clients that are out there right now the ones that i've interacted with anyway look like they're trying to look like twitter or look like facebook you know they have that feel to them the uh, the 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 chatty kind of feel and i'm looking at it very differently i'm looking at it as a a large integrator of hundreds of messages hundreds or thousands of messages that you can scroll through and see the headlines of and then pick one that you want and dig deep. What I'm looking to do here is create what we had in the 1970s and the 1980s that net news environment that I was talking about earlier where we could focus in on a topic and then see the thread of articles for that topic and drill down and drill down and drill down and respond to each other in this wild thread of information and uh, in those days the threads would go for hundreds of messages and they would branch and bifurcate and reunify and they would just literally go everywhere a thread could last for many many months and that's the kind of thing i'm looking to build with more speech i'm not interested in the oh here's a message oh my dog got a <laughs> bath oh you know i did this today yeah. that's not what i'm interested in you know i want to start a serious conversation and have that conversation last for months in a thread. So that's that's the emphasis that I am taking with it. And what's fascinating to me about this is that Noster is perfect for that. And it's also perfect for a Twitter thing. And it's also perfect for everything else. I mean, the the clients that are that are popping up have so much interesting variety. And we haven't scratched the surface of this yet.
1: Yeah. So, you know, like Usenet, great days where there's just insane threads, but it was really hard to find things too. Like, um, are, are you thinking about this problem in cyber client of how to search or like sharing across relays?
2: Oh, the, the whole relay thing. We're going to have to figure that one out <laughs>
1: <It's, that's laughs> yeah. really
2: frustrating right now because I can see threads building, but then, then there's a message that I simply can't see. And I don't know what relay it, it came in on. I can see the ID of the message okay somebody's responding to this message and it has a certain id but i don't know where that message is i cannot find it and it's on some relay that i i'm not subscribed to and i don't know what relay it is so that that we're gonna have to solve and and mike Dilger, i think has some really good ideas about this did i say his name right mike Dilger? i'm pretty sure that's his name
1: mike mike Dilger. yeah we did an interview with him i think last week yeah um, about Yeah. yeah about the gossip client and um yes very useful tool when the network went kind of crazy and I lost my uh, relays. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean we we were all t- attached to a whole bunch of relays and then those relays became instantly unusable. Yeah, as soon as Jack Dorsey. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or no, as, uh, soon as, as soon as 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 Will released uh, Damus. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, China, the China influx just completely spammed the network pretty hard.
2: But I know how so fast the 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 developers and the network responded to that. All of a sudden, we've got the paid relays. They just popped up, yep. and you know yep. I'm signed up to all those. Pay, or I'm signed up to a lot of paid relays. There's probably a bunch I don't know about, and that has really um made the the network continue to be usable while those other relays are getting slammed. And I can still converse with people. I just can't find all the relays I want. I set
0: up a. Uh, I'm building something at the moment, and I set up a, a private relay. Like I didn't publish it anyway. Well, it's not private. It's just like it's unpublished. And then somehow I, I I'm getting Chinese spam on it. With I've not. I don't even know how they found this relay. <laughs> you,
1: you can you can blame it on the you can blame it on the stats guy. <laughs> I I think like. Uh... Yeah, you know, well, you know, the thing is, is that he, he aggregates all the relays, so he he knows where all of them are, like every single time somebody posts something, you know, and they have relay hints or they have that, that relay list, they keep aggregating them. That, and I think that list is somewhere. So if, if these Chinese spam bots saw your relay, they might come after you, even if you don't want to share it with them.
2: It's just amazing, right? So how many people are on Nostra now? It's got to be hundreds of thousands, if not, you know, push uh, a million.
1: Yeah. So if you go to Nostra.bans you know, forward slash stats.html, it actually shows you the daily stats of how many actual pub keys are writing, I think, including the spammy ones, because um, Arthur actually qualifies different kinds of pub keys, ones that are high quality, and there's ones who are just randomly writing crap to the network. Um, And I think it's over a million active pub keys that are writing. But if you actually look at the ones who are, you know, quality quality end pubs with a profile, it's more like 500,000 and activity daily is down. Yeah.
2: Half a million. Wow.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But not everyone's writing every day. It's like maybe 20,000 with profiles that are actually writing every day.
2: Well you know what a year ago it was 50
1: <laughs> <laughs> like not <nada. laughs> a little tiny dot on the graph
2: yeah, was, yeah. so you know something about it is working and you know the the scaling issues are they're going to hit us again and again cuz you know we every time we grow by an order of magnitude we're going to have another scaling issue to deal with but uh so far so good i mean the scaling has worked and the the way that people are dealing with it has been working so good news all around, I think.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's reaching some kind of inflection point where it becomes, or maybe it's already become anti-fragile because the community itself is just sort of, the community is centered on some ideas rather than any particular technology or, or anything. So it's just like, we're going to figure it out.
2: Well, it's gotten from being a, a curiosity and a, and a kind of a fun little project and and oh, isn't it neat? I can talk to these guys. Okay, fine. To something that you actually rely on every day, and and once you cross that boundary, then yeah, people are going to fight like crazy to figure out how to keep it alive and growing and and uh, being ever more useful.
0: So, do you have have you have you thought about like the the what like emergent properties might come up from this network? Like,
2: here you've got a mechanism where people can communicate un uninhibited um across the globe almost instantly and you know we that's what we thought the internet was going to be and for a while it was and the possibilities were enormous and then the big tech guys clamped down and did their nasty little dirty deeds (laughs) and now here we are again and and what what is going to emerge out of this i have i have no idea i can't i can't even anticipate it i've i've seen uh jb 55 will has has said some things about how he likes to just have little private relays here and there and he'll control things in his house with them. I think that's really interesting. <laughs> Could you, you know, the internet of things, you know the whole internet of things thing, wouldn't it be interesting if that turned out to be one of the one of the use cases for Noster, right? So that you can you can be absolutely sure that when you set your thermostat it's you setting your thermostat and nobody else can set your thermostat and nobody can use your thermostat to do denial of the denial of service attacks on other people, which they can right now. Right? I think that's very interesting.
0: Yeah. And also like it's showing the whole Web3 crowd that actually you don't need to put all your data on a on a on a blockchain To prove that, like it's your data, like that you that you're the originator of the data, like you just need signed messages. You don't really need anything else.
2: Blockchains have their purpose, but but yeah, if you can sign the message and prove that you're the owner of that message, you know that that solves so many problems with the the crazy hacky community we've got right now. Have you looked at the um, Church-Rosser theorem? The Hoof theorem? Uh, Church-Rosser church rossa yeah no okay. i thought you were it's saying the the church the the church touring church. But church no. during, yeah, yeah. is that what you meant church during no no i mean i meant church rossa but uh but church okay church yeah Rosa, i don't know
0: church what that is Rosa. ricardo has a question from our group chat um what's the book you're currently working on and uh when's it coming out
2: so the book i just finished uh is called um functional design and it is a a way to take the the principles of design that we have used for the last 20 30 years in in non-functional languages and apply them to functional languages So I go through, you know, why do we have functional languages? What are the characteristics of functional languages? What is it that makes them functional? How does that differentiate from non-functional languages? Now, how do we deal with design principles, all those same principles? How do they apply to a functional language? And what about design patterns? All those patterns that we learned in 1995 do they do they still apply and if so how do they apply how should you structure and modularize your functional program so that you can take advantage of everything we've learned over the last 30 years that's what that book is all about and and of course the language is almost entirely closure except for the first couple of chapters where i actually write some c and a little bit of java
1: <laughs> what what i i keep thinking like 1995 why is it always that year it's, it feels like that was a critical turning point point.
2: 1995 the the the, the mid 90s was a critical turning point for a number of things one of them was design patterns that came out right about then and it was a deeply profound work that that many people now poo poo and they do so at to their peril right <laughs> because they shouldn't be poo-pooing that work it is a remarkable work the other thing that happened in in the mid 90s was the agile revolution. That's and that's when all the old guys like me who had been burning themselves out for 30 years trying to do waterfall finally put their foot down and said we're not doing that anymore. There's got to be a better idea. And then we looked back into the 1950s and saw they had the solution all along and we brought that forward into the into uh the future and we called it agile.
1: <laughs> yeah. Actually, you just jogged my memory. I, I thought I would also mention the mythical man month, if you want to talk about that a bit. I don't think a lot of modern like younger generation people know about it.
2: What a wonderful book. Now that's written by um gosh, his name is gonna escape me for the moment, but he, he that was the the guy who wrote that was the guy who wrote the very first virtual memory operating system. The very first computer that had memory protect hardware and that you could adjust the address space and move it around so that you could do virtual memory and he at IBM he ran the group that put that together for IBM 370 DOS, right? And remarkable work. And then from from that experience and several others he writes this book called The Mythical Man-Month, which some of which is very good, and some of which you scratch your head over nowadays and go, "Well, did he really mean that?" Like the uh, the crazy idea. Maybe it's not a crazy idea, but the idea that programming teams should have a chief programmer and a bunch of programmer slaves around the chief programmer. And the the uh, the the premise there was that there are certain people who can write code ten times faster than the normal person. And they should be chief programmers, and then the normal people should be around that person uh, doing little tasks. He can farm that person can farm out little tasks to the minions around the outside. I'm not sure that's a great idea, <laughs> but but some of the other ideas in that book were were terrific. And then and then he did a um, a second edition. Gosh, I think that was in the 90s that he did the second edition. What the what's the author's name? I still can't pull it in, into my head
1: it's a uh, fred brooks? Book.
2: Fred brooks fred brooks um, fred brooks of yeah. Fred. yeah 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 and and you know great great book altogether but some interesting you know ideas in there that maybe maybe don't work so well and fred brooks of course was is, is responsible for brooks law right which adding manpower to a late project makes it later um i wanted
0: to ask you like um like for, with agile, like how did this turn into like what we've got now, which is like everyone's using Scrum and all this stuff, like which seems to be a complete, like hot, like I-, I can't do it, like it's horrible. Like what what happened there? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so the the uh, the whole agile movement was a reaction to you know the the travails of waterfall that that had been foisted upon us in the nineteen seventies. We actually foisted it upon ourselves. In the 1970s, and then we tried for three decades to make it work, and couldn't make it work properly. and And finally said, "Well, no, let's let's look at how guys actually got things done in the 1950s and 60s. and And the oh, wait, we could do this iterative thing. We could we could measure what we got done every week and use that as a way to project forward in time. What a thought! And Kent Beck was the guy who really codified it well he he wrote the book extreme programming explained in 1999 and that that really did set the stage for this whole agile movement if you look at extreme programming that is the definition of agile and everything else that's come along since or even before is a subset of what kent had put in that original book so we have our meeting in February. A bunch of us get together. We name it Agile. We write the Agile Manifesto. We put that on on a website. Ward Cunningham uh, says, "Hey, I'm going to get people to sign this website because you know <laughs> modifiable websites were a brand new thing then." And so he writes some Perl code so that people can actually sign this website. And to our met ma- to our great surprise, tens of thousands of people sign this website. Yeah, you know, it, it the the idea that you're gonna have a meeting somewhere, you know, a bunch of consultants have a meeting and something actually is going to come from it is a pretty um it, it the, the odds are very low. I've been to a lot of meetings like that where nothing ever comes from it. But here's one where the magic happened and everybody signed the doggone thing. And then of course, what happens is the marketing people come along. Guys want to make money at this stuff, and you can't blame them for that. Ken Schwaber came to me in about 2002 and said Bob I want to use one of your classrooms I was running a, a training company at the time I had a whole bunch of classrooms uh, and uh, He said I want to use one of your classrooms I'm going to teach this class called the Certified Scrum Master class and I'll let all of your guys all of your trainers can can attend for free if you let me use a a Classroom, so I said, "Yeah, go ahead." I thought it was the dumbest idea that I'd ever heard. Right? It was just certified. Who wants to certify something and a Scrum Master? What the devil is a Scrum Master? But okay, he's a friend of mine, and he was there at the at the meeting in Snowbird where we coined Agile. So okay, fine, Ken, go ahead and do that. I didn't happen to go to that class because I had to be somewhere else. Lo and behold, this thing just captures everybody's imagination not programmers, project managers. Project managers thought this was the best thing in the world. Oh my god, we can put this on our resumes, another thing to put on our resumes. We are scrum masters now and the project managers invaded the space. Agile had been the domain of programmers. Programmers are the ones who promoted it. All of us at that agile meeting were programmers, we were all techies. We all thought, hey, this is the idea to this is the best way to run a project. You know, let the techies decide. And the project managers invaded at that point. They took over the conferences, they took over the messaging, they took over everything. And that's really what happened to Scrum. Scrum is not necessarily a bad idea if you go back to the original work by, you know. Martin DeVaux and Ken Schwaber and 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 Jeff Sutherland and they wrote it up in 1995 and submitted it at a design patterns conference, as a matter of fact. And then um it, it was a fine idea back then. It was a nice little subset of what we would think of as agile now, a subset of extreme programming. And um the project managers just came in there and they thought, no, 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 this is a people thing and we're going to expand it and really kind of wrecked it. Kent Beck said at the Agile meeting in, in Snowbird in February of 2001, right? Kent Beck said the reason we are doing this is to heal the divide between business and tech, business and programming. And when the project managers invaded, they did the exact opposite. They they uh worsened the divide between business and Programming they put themselves in the middle and that kind of wrecked it all And then of course all the consultants have to jump in and they've got to put adjectives in front of it So there's this kind of agile and that kind of agile and modern agile and wise agile and your dog's bath kind of agile and Agile agile with all kinds of different adjectives because the consultants have to differentiate themselves from one another and that's led to an awful lot of confusion and so I wrote the book, man, what five years ago now, right? Clean Agile, right? Just which is just a, a restatement of Kent Beck's Extreme Programming Explained, 20 years later, <laughs> as a as a way to to get everybody to focus back on what the idea actually was at the beginning and why we did it and what the principles really are, and so they can see that and look at the. The horizon full of all of these agile techniques that everybody's spouting, and be able to differentiate, you know, with the the wheat from the chaff.
0: Yeah. Um. So I just I just asked asked in the group chat if anyone else had any questions, and Fiat Jeff has a question, which you've sort of touched on already. But like, um, um, he's asking like, um, have you looked at did the, the approaches to decentralized social networks before Nostr, and did you pay attention to these and and like what do you think in comparison to NOSTA?
2: I haven't looked at any of the modern ones. You know, I haven't looked at Mastodon. I've heard that it's not very decentralized or it's kind of quasi-decentralized. But I really haven't studied it at all. I, I grew up with a decentralized network. The the U, Usenet, the UUNet system that I talked about earlier, that was entirely decentralized. There was no way anybody was getting their arms around that right it was just spread to the winds it's completely decentralized so i was very used to that kind of model and that's why when i saw nostr i thought ah okay here we've got something that we had back in the 70s and we could have again Uh, maybe with a little bit better in it because you can sign your documents whereas before you couldn't (laughs) and you use that anybody could have hacked into it and forged your uh, articles which didn't happen very often as far as I know but yeah I haven't looked at anything else uh, obviously I, I did a, a deep dive into the Bitcoin uh, protocols early on before I put any money in it um and I thought well okay that's pretty interesting that's a nice decentralized way of of generating trust so okay I liked that so
1: so is this your first foray into bitcoin or you were in bitcoin before you started working on nostr
2: i was on into bitcoin before i started working on nostr by about a year um my my sons to their credit kept on telling me you know dad you've got to get into bitcoin you really need to get in bitcoin and i looked at them like they were nuts right there's no value value. but there's nothing of substance it's just numbers and and they tried to explain it to me. and once they got my attention, I did a deep dive into the protocol and and I came out the back end of that going, "Oh yeah, <laughs> I see where this is going and why it's valuable. So you know, I put my toe in the water and it, actually, I think I put half of my right leg in the water uh, and uh, became a Bitcoin owner and a few other cryptos as well, but Bitcoin primarily, uh, which okay, I'm not going to look at the value of Bitcoin right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> was this in 21 during the bull market? <laughs> I suppose uh, it
2: was it was before that, but I did experience the joy of the bull market and then the you know
1: <laughs> oh that's good. That's good. So, I'm, right. I'm curious to know what you think about lightning, um lightning integration with Noster. Any thoughts around that and um your experiences?
2: It's just it's so much fun to watch these guys zapping each other. <laughs> zap me y'all' zap you no well well we'll just zap each other um and it's so I, I thought okay all right I, I've I've got a bitcoin wallet it can do lightning I'm gonna I'm gonna set up a lightning address in uh right okay I can do that and like, I can set it up in damas and um turns out that the wallet I was using was Exodus and exodus doesn't do um doesn't do lightning very well you can't create that's a
1: coin wallet really (laughs) (laughs) i hate to say that but it
2: is that's a term that Um, i've learned being a master i have learned that term the coin and the bitcoin okay
1: (laughs) are you running your own bitcoin node yet
2: (laughs) no i'm not running a bitcoin node although my son is he 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 eats his house with it He's got a couple oh, of
1: miners.
2: A he's a miner. Yeah, he's got some miners and he's he puts them in an oil bath and runs the oil around his house and eats his house with it. Um so you know, I um lost my train of thought. <laughs> I don't know what we were talking about. We were Sorry.
1: talking about lightning, and I was curious oh, so to know lightning. if you had looked into lightning's architecture, any thoughts around yeah. lightning, if you you know, if I you had gotten deeply into much. it as well.
2: I don't know much about the Lightning architecture. I kind of get the idea behind it, but I I didn't do the same kind of deep dive into Lightning that I did into Bitcoin. Like I understand Bitcoin and why it's valuable, and I think I get the gist of Lightning and how it can be used. So I I I, I couldn't use Exodus. So I thought, okay, uh, what should I use? And I asked on Noster. and people said, well, there's a whole bunch of them, and they they mentioned the wallet of Satoshi, and. I, I looked at a few of the others and I thought, well that's probably the best one to use. So I I downloaded it and I got it up and running and then I thought, well does it work? And uh <laughs> I don't know if it works and I can't I can't access it from from uh Exodus. So I sent a note on that on said, <laughs> Well, can you send me a sat? I just want to test my wallet. Can everybody <laughs> send me a sat? And I think I got 789 sats out of the deal. <laughs> like, <laughs> which is enough for my coffee. <laughs>
1: I think that was one of the best the best cases early on when people started posting invoices. This guy said, "Can you pay my coffee?" and and you know someone said, "Yeah, sure." And they paid they paid the lightning invoice. And then someone else wrote, "God damn it, you beat me to it! I want to pay the invoice before you did." And someone said, "Oh my gosh, people are competing to pay other people's invoices. This is so <laughs> surreal."
2: <laughs> well, it is pretty interesting. And then so uh, the yesterday, I think it was. I had a a programming problem. I I couldn't get, um, I couldn't get more speech to attach to uh, Snort Social. And every time it would attach, it would just hang up. And I I asked the question out on Noster and somebody said, oh yeah, you've got to have the origin tag in your HTTP headers. And I thought, what? (laughs) Okay, and I I wrote a little bit of code to put the origin tag in the HTTP headers, and it worked. Wait, is this for
1: the... for the relay or for the not for the, the client right for the relay no, right no. okay yeah,
2: yeah. Relay, okay relay not sort social right i couldn't attach to it, right. i couldn't get to that relay and so i put the the origin in the header and that worked and all of a sudden i could talk to the sort, snort social relay and i thought, okay that's great and i i went back to the guy and i said hey you're my hero of the morning and i sent him 500 sats <laughs> yeah just because there you know and, and i think that's great i think it's a terrific thing It'd be really yeah. easy to send people, you know, little tips and little bits of this and that. It's a a, a little bit extra uh, attaboy. And, you know, you could probably pay people for significant work that way. So I'm all for it. Good stuff.
1: Great. That that makes me feel good. Like I've been sitting on lightning and working with lightning for the last two years. And sometimes people have been saying, oh, this thing's useless. No one's ever going to use it. And an hour everybody's using it. That's so great. Use it. <laughs>
2: yeah. All the Nostriches will use it.
1: Yeah. Hopefully more people who don't know about it will use it when they get on boarded to, to Noster.
2: yeah, I mentioned, uh, mentioned it on Twitter and somebody sent me something about some other mechanism on Twitter that you can use, but I'd rather not use Twitter for something like that.
1: Um so Twitter people were using it, I think back in 21 and early 22. Um, because you can post Lightning invoices anywhere. It's just a QR code. Right. It doesn't right. matter. So it's like platform agnostic, which is really beautiful. Um, but like the tightness of the integration, especially with NIP 57 now alla- well, allowing us to see receipts, um, that's really powerful. Um, and, you know, I was wondering if you had any ideas around organizations because now that we have not only comms and we have payments and we have private relays you could actually organize um around you know uh create a decentralized organization around that like let's say you know i'm collaborating with somebody in south africa i'm you know in the u.s and you know they're doing some really awesome freelance work for me and then i pay them in sats something like that
2: what could you do let's see now what could you do with an unimpeded network that nobody can forge and a medium of convenient exchange. What could you build with that? <laughs> yeah. Let's build a civilization with that. Completely different civilization. <laughs> I, think, I think the the, uh, the potential is enormous.
1: Are we having our like 1995 moment?
2: <laughs> you saw the, Again? the uh, post that went out today. It was a picture of Martin Luther and then another pic and next to that was a picture of Satoshi and, and a then a picture of um <laughs> Fiat Jeff. Did you see that image? It was gorgeous. No, I didn't. It, it was a. it was saying exactly that, right? There have been these revolutions in the past, right? Martin Luther's revolution of the church, and then and then the, the currency revolution by Satoshi, and then finally the the information revolution by Fiat Jeff. And, I, the image was really spectacular the the way they had drawn it uh so i i thought yeah there's probably something to that this is is this another 1995 are we about to embark upon a, a a brand new world and i think there's there's something to that you know i don't want to i don't want to do too much prediction but you look at the way Noster has grown and the crazy the crazy ideas and the the wild creativity going into it and you know something is happening yeah
1: um also something's happening with the ai industry uh i don't know what's going on there in detail but apparently some 20 billion dollars i saw was invested in the last year
2: yeah um
1: and can we see things like that merge i'm just you know i i really don't know what's going on but kirsten know if you've heard anything.
2: The the AI stuff, you know We go through this thing with AI every 20 years where where somebody says something profound about AI and it's going to take over and then it Then you realize what it really is. No, it's not fuzzy logic is not going to take over. It's not going to take over people's jobs I'm sorry. No language models are not going to take over people's jobs. I'm sorry. That's not going to happen the 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 AI's the chat GPTs and the bings and the, the things like that are very impressive, but they are not intelligent. They are not even close to intelligent. There's no creativity in there at all. They are language models. And what that means is that they statistically string together words uh based on what they have read by other people without any understanding or or intent right they just do a statistical model of words and string them together uh, in a way that other people have already done in the past yeah and it's very oh impressive <laughs> and you know their their ability to understand understand is not the right word uh parse and impute meaning to uh to words is pretty interesting but there's no real intelligence there so I, my guess is that the amount of money being sunk into that is uh too much. <laughs> People are spending too much money on this because they have an overblown expectation and there will be as there always has been a wave of disappointment to follow
1: that. Yeah. Like FOMO like
2: in some and, like, ways in some sorry, ways, go ahead. in some ways the object oriented revolution was on the trough of one of those disappointments the ai stuff had come out and everybody was talking about ai back in the the 70s and in the early 80s and then it all collapsed because everybody realized they were being told a lie and those researchers turned and they went into oh oh the object-oriented world and fueled that uh crazy uh mess for a few years all of that money was
0: printed for free anyway so that's uh,
2: that's why it's so- <laughs>
1: Yeah, all the big tech was way too close to the money printer. That that's for sure.
0: But also the the AI crowd, like they're all focusing on computation as the basis for intelligence. And um, I think they've got it like just you know I I don't know anything, but but I think they've got it totally wrong. I think it's like the basis for intelligence is actually like you need to to suffer first because it's if you can't. Split, <laughs>
1: So
2: like are suffering.
1: Person, life is suffering <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness you
0: know this is uh, why i'm it, this is why i'm worried about like if we make ai like if we make in, in, artificial consciousness or it wouldn't even be artificial it would just be consciousness but if we create consciousness the first thing it's going to do is ask like why the fuck did you create me and <laughs> why do i have to suffer <laughs> <laughs> because
2: life is suffering and now i'm suffering
1: did I, you I ever often... see oh a- Oh, uh, I was going to say, did you ever see like, a uh, um, Avengers, the Marvel, um, uh, Marvel comic or TV show? Yes. Yeah. So the, there's a, there's an AI that's creating, um, like they create a, a, a female robot called Ada and Ada you know, can do everything like a person pretty much, but then the robot gets hit with some magical, like external power and Rob's like, but I want to be human. So somehow it like engineers itself to be human. And then the first thing that happens, it says, oh, I feel so much pain and suffering. I don't want to <laughs> be a human anymore.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you just, know, we've just, seen that.
1: Yeah,
2: any number of times, right? You've got data from Star Trek who would really like to be human, and and uh you know Mike from um the moon is a harsh mistress. We we've we've gone through that many, many times. The computer will eventually become sentient. Number five is alive, right? We've seen this over and over again, and it misses something, I think, which is If you if you agree with the computational theory of intelligence, then you have to understand the scale of what we're talking about. The human brain is made up of a trillion neurons, and each of those neurons has tens of thousands of interconnections. And every single neuron is an information processor more powerful than an iPhone. this is an immense amount of computational power in a human brain nothing nothing that we have comes close so maybe intelligence is just a computational problem but we do not have the facilities at this point to come even close to the amount of computing power that sits in that you know slushy matter inside our skulls
1: Yeah, this this starts to make me think about the society of mind and Marvin Minsky. I don't know; it, it seems all too abstract, in a way, of um, what is artificial, what is intelligence. I don't know if you ever read that book.
2: No, I did not. No, I've heard people refer- reference it, but I've never read it.
1: Yeah, like Marvin Minsky started one of the fathers of AI.
2: Yeah, I've heard the name Minsky, but I haven't really delved into into that much.
1: There there is one um one person who actually brought up this. I don't think he wants to be named. He said that he actually (laughs) likes he he said that he he thinks dynamic type systems are shitty. (laughs) And that you know advocating unit testing and test driven development isn't that great with if you if you have a decent type system and i kind of want to hear your rebuttal on that or like what you think if you don't mind
2: <laughs> oh heavens you know so so this is the war that we have every every 10 or 15 years are we going to be dynamically typed or statically typed and and back in the 90s we all wanted to be statically typed because we'd paid the price of of working in c which was untyped and then we went through the whole static type revolution into the 2000s and the 2010s, and then oh no, there's Ruby and that's dynamically typed and it's much much better. We've got to all be Ruby and Python programmers, and then we burned ourselves with that, and so now we have to be Swift and Dart and and Kotlin programmers because it's better. It's just a pendulum that goes back and forth, and and the reason that it goes back and forth is that one is not better than the other. It's a an unstable Situation that oscillates now the the closure solution I like because closure is a dynamically typed language, but within closure there is a library called spec, and that library allows you to specify types in much more detail than any statically typed language can even approach, even Haskell, right? You can you can specify types. Dynamically, and then you can choose as a programmer when to assert those type checks. And that is much more powerful, I think, than living in a statically typed world where the compiler decides when to apply the type checks. I would rather do that myself. I would rather be able to say, I will type check here and I will not type check over here because I have unit tests that do that checking but over here, I need the type checking because I can't put unit tests there or I haven't put unit tests there or I need both. So that that is the best of both worlds, I think. Well,
0: what is that based on? Um, is, that, is that rooted in like Lambda calculus, that those types that you're referring to in, in Clojure?
2: Well, it, it's written in Lisp, which is a kind of Lambda calculus. Yes, the um, it is based on a set of assertions and the assertions investigate your data structures and ensure that the the data structures have the appropriate structure and the appropriate contents and the appropriate names and that you know you can even test um that certain computational relationships are in place so for example if you wanted to um to type check a uh, uh a a balance sheet uh, you know an accounting balance sheet you could uh you could Type check the fact that the assets and the liabilities balance if you really wanted to do that, right? You'd have to re reproduce the computation in that sense. It's a kind another kind of unit test So it is um, it is a set of functions that you can apply to validate the structure of a data structure and then you can uh, you can decide to apply them or not as you wish For example, what I often do is I will put them into the pre and post conditions of a function and that way, when the function is initially called, it checks the type, and when when the initi when the function returns, it again checks the type, making sure that you haven't you've got the right type coming in and you've got the right type going out. And then, in the end, you turn all those checks off when you're in production, if you want to. You don't have to. Um,
0: I don't really have any other questions, <laughs> um, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, Uncle Bob, do you have any questions for us?
2: well guys um I I haven't got any idea who you are
1: ah gee do you want to tell him a bit about him yourself and then I'll tell him a bit about myself
0: I've got a computer science background and um I've gone deep into uh, I've been in, in Bitcoin since like around 2013 so that and that's sort of how I got into Nostra. I was just like wow this is the same thing but for data and um anyway I, I started the podcast like I, I I was like good at sort of uh programming and whatever but but not that good at talking to people so much like you should you should start a podcast then since you're not very good at talking to people that then you'll be forced to talk to people and so i was like hey hey bit carrot you're good at talking to people we should do this together so uh, yeah that's that's how this came about
2: that that is a that is a very very good idea a programmer who cannot articulate their intentions is in trouble <laughs> i can articulate
0: things as long as i have enough time and a, and enough and enough like, and I can write it down, but just I can't do it later on the fly in a conversation very well.
2: Yeah, and that's a problem because the people who can will override you and win the argument. Yeah, it's
1: tough, isn't it? Yeah, you have to be a little bit aggressive about things like that, especially I think in like, you know, programming teams. Sorry, I cut in there.
2: No, that's fine, yeah. And, and in any kind of management situation, right? You have to be able to be, you have to be able to have the, the uh, adeptness with words to address the, an attack that comes at you, uh, and, yeah, and to do a podcast like this is a great way to do it. Writing is a great way to do it. Any anything that you can do to exercise your ability with words and to assemble ideas rapidly and to communicate them forcefully is going to help you enormously in any part of your career.
1: Yeah, uh, G and I, we you know like i got into bitcoin and you know he's also part of the bitcoin association we have like 20 odd friends who are all connected to us socially because we're all bitcoiners and a bitcoiner bitcoin is a pretty you know tight network early on i think especially because so many people are like you people are crazy like why would you want internet money like this is not real um so you know i feel like you know connections there are a little bit you know um people understand each other a little bit more because you're up against a lot of negativity from you know the status quo about something that's so new and so strange like minors like why would you mind something like that anyway um,
0: All righty. so um, I guess I guess we'll wrap it up. Sounds good to me. Thank you guys.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah thank you Bob. On. Really appreciate really cool. your time.
0: Head over to nostrovia.org to see how to follow us on all the major social credit platforms.